Everybody says finance is the most boring part of the business, and I fundamentally disagree with that. For me, it's the most sexy part of the business. Not only because it's about making money, but because it's the one place in the company where everything combines. If you're talking about HR or marketing or purchasing, everything connects with each other through the finance. When we think about the complex and intricate nature of business, we make considerations for our own staff and departments, external matters like suppliers and supporting services like your accountants or your advertisers, and finally, the customers and whether or not they'll be coming back. The takeaway that stands out to me above all else from my guest Rob DeBrock of Insight Matters is that finance is what ties all of this together. So when they say you deserve the same insights as corporate CEOs, you might want to listen in for the next hour and find out what those are. Rob Tabraka, it is good to have you here on Economics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm doing good, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's a it's a pleasure to be uh, to, to have you on. And normally, our outreach um, program is basically, you know, we have a guy. Uh, he, he we we do our data mining. We reach out to. I mean, we're we're just an exploratory vessel trying to make as much contact in the e-commerce space as possible. Uh, but when I asked you about your familiarity, one of the things that you had said is, you know, when you're reaching out to, to shows and, you know, want to make sure that you're a good fit. At this point, I have lost track of like who we've invited and who's uh, uh, asked to come on. So uh, just to clarify that, partially for my own ego, admittedly, you had found us and you wanted to uh, pay a visit to the show. Yeah, uh, I work with a guy who helps me screen, find a screen podcast that he thinks is a, are a good fit for me, uh, where I can add value, where I can tell our story. Um, and he found you guys, and I always listen to one or two episodes before I give the green light to reach out. Then before the, we're, the recording, I listen to an, another one or two episodes. So yeah, we found you guys. It really, truly means a lot. It's been a year's worth of uh, content so far. And and I know that it is part of just the, the business method. Like you say, you have somebody who reaches out, uh, screens a podcast. Maybe from other people's point of view, it's a rather routine thing. But for me, it uh, it, mean, it means a great deal because I'm given this my all. And I can only say that so often. And then I actually also have to deliver on that. So let's deliver. Uh, first question. Oh, you, 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 know, you know what's coming. Here goes. Yeah. Tell us, what do you do? And what, you, what are you up to these days? These days, I'm up to running Inside Matters. Uh, Inside Matters is a uh, financial reporting and analysis company. So we help e-commerce owners get data out of their financials. So we support them with accounting and bookkeeping, but especially the reporting layer on top of that to translate the value in the bookkeeping into basically meaningful insights for you as your entrepreneur. I have to say, what I appreciate from your background, and as you as you know, you know, it, I, I'm always selective about when I feel the background needs to come up. But I guess in this case, it's going to be sooner than later. But what I appreciate from your background is that you have a wide variety of um, pursuits uh, and a lot of experience in corporate structure, but also in entrepreneurship. And what what we found from looking into your uh, LinkedIn profile is, for you, it is helping people get those insights and getting that clarity on their financials. That has been your your driving factor. And so my my, my first question in that regards is what it is what is it about that that's uh, such a uh, catalyst for you my educational background is finance and strategy and i've worked uh, in a corporate job before then became entrepreneur as the entrepreneur i was doing our own bookkeeping and i found it such a boring task to do the books but the value that we got from that from actually seeing what's happening and understanding where the money was coming from and where the money was going that was such an eye opener and later on, when I pivoted into consulting, 
And I would ask other people like, hey, show me your books, show me your reports, where are we? None of them would have a clue where they were. Everybody was faring blind on their intuition, on their gut feeling or on like small pieces of data. And it just blew my mind that some people can throw, again, grow a company to 20, $30 million in revenue without understanding their numbers. I find that scary. And for me, it's not even actually about the numbers itself. It's much more the, the story behind it and the, the information that's hidden in there that tells a story that basically tells the story of the whole company. So everybody says finance is the most boring part of the business. And I fundamentally disagree with that. For me, it's the most sexy part of the business, not only because it's about making money, but because it's the one place in the company where everything combines. If you're talking about HR or marketing or purchasing, everything connects with each other through the finance. So in our eyes, it is the most powerful lever that you have to make decisions on, on where to invest, when to hire, what to, which products to cancel, all of that has a financial background. I agree with your with your your statement that it all uh, ties into the finance because I mean business at the end of the day is I mean we we always say on the show it is about you know solving problems and being of service to others, um, but in much more pragmatic sense it is about the money and there's there's a number of things that stuck out to me from what you're describing and so I'll go through them. The first is the 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 storytelling aspect of the of the data. And I have to say, you know, coming from my, my quirky, you know, art, arts background, you know, we were the storytellers of, of the world. And I think one of the limiting, fa limiting factors that keeps a lot of the, you know, the art world from having a better sense of the business world is the idea that there is no story there and that it is actually rather robotic and rote and banal. And that's not true. And I've learned this throughout this last year, that there is a significant amount of passion um, put into um, what other uh, consider to be a, uh, well, you know, a, a less than exciting than, I don't know, making, making a game or, or, or painting. And conversely, people might find that boring. So there's a whole thing about that, but I don't really want to get into that. What I wanted to ask about was when you identify the, the story, what I'm hearing is there's actually two stories and I don't know if they're intertwined. So the first story is they're, ability to collect collect the data how they're able to raise i'm i'm surprised as you say it like 20 million dollars 30 million dollars and they have they don't really know where it's going where where it's where it's coming from so there's one story and then the other story is what the data provided that maybe in another case it actually is accurate what that story what story there is telling now this is my guess that we have two different stories here is it actually just one story or um, do you notice a different narrative in helping the company? I know I'm going the long way. I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but I really want to make sure I give you a, a, a good question here. So is there one kind of story about a company trying to sort their shit out and then another kind of story once they have it and they actually have their, their, their data worked out? Let me know if I need to rephrase this because this was definitely a, a somewhat of a thought process for me. No, the thing is, it, it, it's all... There, there are different, uh, different steps on the way, but all of them go from stage zero where they have nothing. Let me phrase it like this. There's this, everybody knows Maslow's hierarchy of need, I assume. Yeah, There's also it's like a, one of the few things I remember from high school. Exactly. There's also a financial hierarchy of needs. And every organization, every company goes through that in one way, form or shape, where at the bottom it's record keeping and accounting. So just tracking what happens, which money is coming in, which money is going out, what does it spend on, 
just registering where things go. If you have that in order, you should go up to the second level where you have more reports, where you have more uh, dashboards, KPIs. So there's like a translation layer to make that raw data into useful, meaningful data about what's going on in your business. The third layer on top of that is planning and budgeting. So if you have everything backward looking on reporting side in order, at that point you can start using historical data to make more forward looking projections. And that's going to drive different discussions on, hey, what is our cash flow position going to be like 12 months from now? What can we afford to, to launch a new product, et cetera? And the highest level is where finance is what they call a business partner. And that kind of means that finance is an integral part of any big decision in your business. Now, for most early stage or mid-stage e-commerce, you're probably in, in the second or the third layer. Um, the fourth one is usually a bit more corporate driven. So if you're talking about are there two different stories, actually both of them are different stages of the, that, that hierarchy of needs where the ones that don't have anything in order apparently had a really good gut feeling and, and a good feeling for their market and their products, but they are still in the first stage of that whole pyramid, pyramid where they are tracking what happened, but they're not getting any value from that. And the second case, the second narrative you mentioned is really just one or two steps up where they are managing to get more data, more value from the data. I see. Yeah. I, and not that I want to spend uh, too much time um, associating with like the main hierarchy of motivation, um, but it is interesting, the, the parallel there, because if you look at the basic hierarchy of motivation, what you have is you essentially cannot move up the ladder until the previous needs are met, bar none. It's, exactly. safe, it's, it's food, hunger, the, you know, the, the, the self-sustenance, and then safety and security, and then I uh, actually forget forget the rest of it because I don't think I ever got that far myself. But whereas with uh, with with business, it's essential. But based on what you're describing, it might not actually happen. They might actually uh, somewhat end up being on on the higher rung. Um, as I mean, in the end of the day, they they seem to be generating um, uh, money. So for them to how do you, I guess here's 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 the question uh, that I'll ask you is, let's say you have to convince somebody, you know, they're they're making money, things are going well is what do you do to help them understand that they skipped a few steps? Once we have to, that conversation, it's really easy. You start asking them, what's actually the margin that you make on which product group? They often would say, I don't really know. And then you have the conversation like, hey, then maybe let's get the foundation in order first because we can make fantastic analysis. We can make amazing budget forecasts. But if the foundational input is wrong, our whatever we are going to deliver to you is wrong as well. So let's fix that first. If you hit the, the, the product market fit sweet spot and you do a couple of things right, it's actually not that difficult. Of course, easy for me to say as the outsider to scale to 30 million as long as you have the product market fit well. And if your margins are good and your ad cost is, is low enough, you can get there. If it's sustainable, no. And is it risky? Absolutely, because you're kind of doing that in the blind. So it's like putting on a blindfold on and running across the highway. You can do it, and there's a big chance you're going to survive, but you still wouldn't do it because you shouldn't do it because it's too damn risky. It's, yeah, it's inconsistent. I mean, sooner or later, a car is going to get you. Exactly. So if you're getting to that level of revenue, 
and that level of that size, I mean, they were at 60, uh, 60 people or more or less. The decisions that they as the owners are making are getting bigger and bigger. The impact of the decision is going to get bigger as well. So if they're making a wrong decision, the damage they're going to do is also much bigger. So that alone is enough reason to say, let's get your information flow in order so that you can make better decisions. There's no guarantee you're not going to crash, but at least you have better view. That's a fascinating insight because um, what I would expect, not you know, not not exactly having run um, you know seven figure businesses, eight figure businesses myself, is the I guess more of a sense of security having that uh, having that uh, higher level of revenue. When in actuality, your revenue increases because your costs increase. So when somebody has to make a, a bigger decision at that point, it can be much more cataclysmic than if somebody had to make a comparable decision when they're just you know running a side hustle, making a couple of thousand a month, something along those lines. Yes. Well, that's that's the, the direct consequence of having a bigger team and bigger numbers that the impact of your decisions is bigger. Again, that's the reason why you want to have better information so that you can make the better decision based on data. And ideally, the data corresponds with your gut feeling because that's the best validation you can get. It's always interesting if the data conflicts with the gut feeling because then you're going to have an interesting discussion about, hey, what might be wrong in the data or where does your gut feeling come from and where, so what is actually the reality or the truth in that case? I might want to ask you a little bit more about uh, gut feelings, but I'm going to, I'm almost like developing a segment here uh, as, as of yesterday's episode where I do like, okay, you now for the unpinning section. So I might uh, unpin that later. Um, there was another um, a thread that also came up um, around the same time that I asked you about the, the, the multiple uh, narratives. So this one is about quantifying what I think can be rather difficult to quantify in a business. So one of the, for instance, one of the positions that you had mentioned is human resources. And, and this somewhat ties in the 80-20 the rule, where if you consider that 80% of the value comes from 20% of the company. So you have this more nebulous state in the remaining 80% where you know there's, there's customer success, there's human resources, there are uh, numerous um, support staff that you can't exactly draw as clear a conclusion from them as say your sales staff. We're very clearly drawing a conclusion because you're measuring how much they, they sell. So I, my, the obvious question is, is this a challenge? I'm kind of assuming that it is a challenge. So more advanced than that is, and tell me if I'm wrong about that, by the way, but I guess more uh, in depth than that is how, what measures can you take to accurately reflect the positive or negative impact that the 80% are, are having rather than the 20%? If you're looking at your cost structure, it's very, like you say, identifying the value of salespeople is relatively easy. Identifying the value of a, a good purchaser is also relatively easy. Let me tell you a story about when I was still working in the bank, my, my first corporate job. They were trying to cut costs and they looked at the call center and um, the whole idea was they thought, the management thought, costs there were too high, we want to cut. So the they looked at how much time does the every agent on, on average spend uh, on the phone with a, with a customer? And that was, I forgot the numbers, but let's say three minutes. So they reasoned, well, if we cut that down to two minutes, then we can save one third of the cost because we have less time, we can let go of some people. So they started managing that team on average time on the phone with a customer. And they actually got it down to two minutes. However, the, the effect was the cost went up because all of a sudden, instead of incentivizing the agents to focus on uh, solving the problem of the customers, 
the, the, the agents had the incentive to cut down the conversation. So if they didn't know the answer, they would just become rude almost and cut off the conversation. Or they would say, sorry, the expert is not here, call back tomorrow. Because that would get the, their average time down. The overall effect was more phone, more phone calls, more staff needed, and therefore actually higher costs. It's very difficult to say, oh, this cost is the one we absolutely need to minimize because there may be certain hidden value in there. Me being a finance guy, I would want to minimize my marketing costs. But I know that if I skimp on marketing costs, we're going to get the, the effect that the value that that person delivers is less. So did I save money in that case? Probably not. That 80-20 distinction, it's really hard to, to use in this case, I think. We're angling towards the, the three little letters that being on the receiving end of them uh, drive me bonkers. And those letters are KPI. As my longtime audience knows, I, and I, I, you know, I even mentioned on this episode pre, uh, not too long ago, is you know, I, have a, I have a pretty substantial background in sales, um, mainly in watches, which might not seem significant um, given the, you know, the level of conversation that we're having here. But one of them is luxury watches, so like Rolexes and, and you know, talking with people who are rather high profile. So to me, that counts. And what I, and you know, it's funny because you're, you know, talking about reducing the phone calls in 30 minutes, two minutes. Uh, that to me seems pretty drastic. I mean, even like a, even shaving off 10 minutes might have, uh, um, might have been helpful. Um, I over, overcorrecting is, is an issue that I think a lot of people face, whether they're running a company or they're just trying to figure out what time to get up in the morning. So one of the issues that I had with, with KPIs is that it wasn't, like it was tracking the good and the bad. It was more, they were deciding what were the positive qualities they were looking for and what were the negative qualities by their standards. And I basically, I mean, if I can, I, as a salesperson, I ignore them uh, because when I'm on the phone with somebody, the only thing that matters is the, per is the other human being on the other side who is about to spend gobs of money on a watch. Yep. If I end up having a conversation with them for an hour, which has happened, um, and and we spend like 20 minutes talking about uh, Ayn Rand, we're having that conversation. Uh, so I often <laughs> feel that I'm actually, I'm trying to act in the best interest for myself, for the consumer, and also for the company, because I know that if you give somebody bang up experience, they will call back and they will, and they will, and they'll want to come back. That's me, my, 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 my mini rant for the day. I'm, a, I'm allocated three per episode. And so about KPIs, in your view, how have they been um, properly implemented that is fair and equitable to everybody involved? And if you have experience with how they can be implemented wrong, you know, on the lines of doing a two-minute call, uh, which is well, like 95% shorter than the 30 minutes call, I'd like to hear more about that too. The number one thing that goes wrong with KPIs is that they pick the wrong KPIs or they're, they're way too detailed or not detailed enough. So... If you want to set KPIs properly, what you need to understand is what are they serving? Because KPIs are never the purpose in itself. They are a gauge to measure the progress towards another goal. So what is that goal? That's where you got to start. And in, in, for this audience, if you're running an e-commerce business, are you trying to build a Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek kind of business? Are you trying to build the next Amazon? That makes all the difference between what KPIs you should be tracking or, or, or running your business on. So the first thing you got to do is be very, very specific. What is it that I want to achieve? 
And how do you quantify that? Because every goal has a financial translation of it. That four-hour work week, that still means that you want to take out a certain level of money every month to pay for that lifestyle. Or if you are looking to build the next Amazon, you probably have a certain revenue or valuation target in mind that you want to hit. So make that a financial quantifiable goal and then translate that back into the metrics that actually lead there. Now, we are mostly focused on the finance side. So we would be looking at revenue, margins, cash flow, these kind of things. But there are also leading indicators that uh, are arguably as important or maybe even more important than the strictly financial ones. And it really depends on your business and your goal and your structure to see what they are. Anybody that tells you like, oh, in e-commerce, you need to have uh, uh, your uh, CAC versus LTV ratio needs to be at least four. As a rule of thumb, fine. As a hard KPI, it really depends on your specific goal, your business, if that's actually the right one. What we usually do and what I think is absolutely critical is spending a lot of time upfront honing down on what's the goal. Because if the goal is wrong, the KPIs will be wrong and you're going to push your business into the wrong direction. And I don't want to cooperate on that. Could I uh, solicit perhaps um, a case study? I mean, client confidentiality in full effect, but um, I, I'd love to hear, a if, if you got one, a specific example of kind of readjustment for a KPI that turned out uh, for the better. We had a client, e-commerce space, who was incredibly focused on his marketing spend. We want to get our custom acquisition cost as low as possible. And if you're strictly selling on Amazon, I can kind of understand that because you don't own the customer. But they were doing the majority of their business through Shopify. So the number one thing they would look at every day was what is the acquisition cost yesterday? How much did we spend in ads? How many customers did we acquire? And so what's the value of that? And therefore, they completely ignored the potential of upselling and uh, uh, repeat purchases from those clients. So one of the, after it was clear that they were looking to sell the business somewhere down the road, that, that was their main objective. For us, the conclusion was very simple. Having a repeat customer base is a much more sustainable business to sell and therefore the higher valuation. So if you want to retire, sell this business at, let's say, $20 million, you can keep burning money on ads and you, to a certain extent you have to. But focusing much more on the lifetime value of that customer and the number of repeat purchases with a certain gross margin target is a much more sustainable way. Growth will, might be a little bit slower in the short run because you acquire less new customers. But overall, the, after at least at, uh, at most a year, your revenue and especially your profit will be substantially higher. That took a little bit of uh, massaging, basically, and a couple of discussions before that landed. And now their ad spend is down with I think 70% or so because they've invested much more in email marketing and in other retention strategies. Right. Okay. So remarketing was their was their blind spot. And and, and we've certainly had uh, a number of people on uh, on this program um, throughout trumpeting the values of uh, of remarketing. I mean, I mean, the way I, I tend to summarize it is that you know the colder the customer, the more it's going to cost. So the 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 further they're along in the funnel, you know, the the, the warmer they are. And 
and not to, to to denigrate the company because they're doing much better than uh, than I've done. It's rather significant in business, and so in the same way that you know other, another business uh, might not have their 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 books uh, set up correctly, there's this underlying almost this encouraging factor where you can actually still do pretty darn well even if you are missing out on certain key factors. So it can just be this huge sigh of relief and this huge wave of opportunity to realize that. You know, one of our one of the table one of the legs holding the table has been weak. We 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 fix that up, and then all of a sudden, it has completely changed the way we can do our business. Yeah. Well, at the same time, that was one of my biggest lessons in corporates. Even the big corporates, they look shiny from the outside. Inside, a lot of it is holding together with with uh, with sticks and wire because it's just not as solid as the marketeers and the brand experts make it look. So, also, if you as an e-commerce entrepreneur look at your competitors. Yeah, they might be doing better than you in certain things, but that doesn't mean that they have their, their shit in order. So this next question, I understand that this is probably not your area of expertise, but I'm going to put it out into the ether anyways, which is, do you see in perhaps the clients that you're working with, how much they've been keeping track of really like, you know, the employee satisfaction, um, productivity, labor, happiness levels? Because um, I know this gets into some pretty difficult area to quantify, but I think that there's a compelling case there that if the employees are unhappy, the lowers productivity. So has that been able to crop up in, in data in a meaningful way? The short answer to that is no. We have seen in our agency clients that that has an impact where the leadership style of the founders or the owners would have an impact there on employee turnover. And employee turnover is costly. On the e-commerce side, not so much. Be simply because it's much more capital intensive and a lot of the, the work is SOP driven. So it, it sounds not so friendly, but a lot of those people are somewhat replaceable. So employee satisfaction there, employee costs are not that high. So if we've seen people overpay 10, 20% over market rates just to keep people in and keep them happy. So that's not a, in e-commerce, that's not a big issue that we see. Yeah, I'm um, pointing out the significance of SOPs in e-commerce. Right. Yeah, I can I can definitely speak to that too. Even within our own company, you know, SOPs are an important factor just because you know we want to make sure that the the activity is is consistent. With so much having so much initiative that an e-commerce company has to take, and with so many risks that it has to take, um, the importance of SOPs cannot be understated because it allows for certain things to be more predictable. So that you know, when people have they don't have to take chances on things that are unnecessary to take chances on. This is one that's just out of, out of curiosity. It's kind of more for my for my clarification because one of the things that I that you know we we've stated is because you know, you're you know working with consulting and agencies, then there's also you know e-commerce, um, and then there's like other online businesses. And what I was keen to ask you about that is, I guess, what's the line between those businesses and why they don't why why exactly are they not e-commerce? And so, in your frame of reference, what is, how do you specify e-commerce? E-commerce for us, per definition, has inventory. Okay. So we don't have any dropshipping clients. That would be the 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 the, the gray zone there. But anybody with a Shopify store or an Amazon store, or even if it's wholesale, uh, we would consider that e-commerce. And if you talk about other online businesses that are not e-commerce, in our case, that would usually mean a company with like a portfolio of affiliate sites, for example. So no inventory. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask that. I mean, my, my, my perspective on it 
I, I, I have somewhat of a more of a, of a very broad reaching it, um, just in that if it's an online transaction, I count it. So I've said, well, Uber is e-commerce because you got to order a, a ride online. But that's you know my my own point of view, and it also has to do with uh, you know like a larger through line, which to me is this 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 merging of e-commerce into commerce, and eventually you won't really see businesses running without some sort of online uh, component. So this is a bit of like a through line for me. True. To be honest, in we take the the sec, like the 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 separation as e-commerce has inventory and it's purely a, a pure play e-commerce store basically. Companies that are bigger and have and retail and e-commerce and the couple of the examples you just mentioned, we wouldn't work with them because they're too big. They have their own in-house teams. Coming back to one of the things that we had talked about a bit earlier is, you know, the the, the challenge of um, and convincing and as you say, you know, massaging clients to uh, make these alterations. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll try to do this. Uh, um, not uh, I'll try not to embellish too much, but, you know, my girlfriend and I are looking into mutual funds, go to an office, the, the expert, he shows us a, a chart that we're not allowed to take home. It's somewhat confidential information. But basically what he showed was over over time, even though there were dips in the market, it largely is on an increase. And so you don't look at those dips in the market as a time to panic. You actually look at them as an opportunity to buy more units so that when the market corrects, it continues to go upwards. Now, I was convinced about mutual funds before, but that made a huge difference because seeing you know the, the, the growth from say like the 1970s until now, dips and all, it allows for a lot more peace of mind in the overall growth of it. So that's the data that somebody uses to convince me on something like that. Um, so the question that I uh, post to you is, in this situation, what do you have to show, to, to indicate that the decision you are making for them is the, is the right one? We are not making any decision for them. Okay. We are, if anything, we point out at, the da- at their own data and ask questions. So you won't hear us say like, hey, you have to do this because it's not our call. We see, we say, we see this trend. We look at this chart, we see this data, we see this trend. So that makes us think this is probably what's going on. But in the end, we are outsiders. We don't know the company as well as the owner does. We bring a certain expertise and we put that at their disposal and in some cases, the owner basically says, hey, you guys are right. We, should, we will move that the other way around. More often than not, they would come back with questions and challenge us and say, hey, we've been doing this for this reason. How does that relate to what you guys are seeing? And it's in that conversation where the exchange of knowledge takes place and where they form their opinion and they make the decision. We are, in that sense, more the, the, the sparring partner and the data vessel we wouldn't tell them what to do. Okay. Okay. I, I, I appreciate that. Sorry if I, uh, I, if I drew a conclusion there that I shouldn't have. No, no, no worries. That's kind of the role of the advisor. So we advise, but we don't, we don't have the full picture. Just like when you talk with the insurance agent, he doesn't understand your personal situation as well as you do. So you give him a bunch of information and he will tell you based on what you tell me and what I see, this is probably best for you. But in the end, it's your decision and your risk profile. I appreciate that. All right. So this next one that I have uh, that I've already asked you. So you know, one of the um, this is, you know quote from the website basically that you want to offer people the kinds of insights that a CEO uh, would have. What would be an, an insight that would separate a CEO from from an average seller? And you know, making sure that both 
examples are looking at the same kind of information. The corporate CEO would have a very clear details report with all the KPIs that he wants to see. The seller would usually have the Amazon or the Shopify dashboard and a couple of other things. So what we do is we bring a dashboard to the owner that shows the full financial picture. So not only the sales side, but the overall financial picture. And that includes, and that's what most people are missing is, for example, not only the revenue per product category, because that you can easily take from your dashboards, but also your gross and your net margins per category. And you are, now you're probably going to tell me like, yeah, but your marketing spend that somewhere you can already see in your Amazon dashboard as well. And you're partially right, but the time that you or your team spends on it is also marketing costs. And that is never reflected in the dashboard. So you're under in that dashboard that you get from Amazon, you're understating your marketing costs. So we try to get the full picture that includes all relevant costs for each different product category, because that will give you more detailed information about which products are actually profitable or not. So if, if there's one comment that I can make to uh, add to the clarity, so it's the difference between being able to uh, you know, analyze the activity as an outsider and get a better picture of you know, what it is that they're doing. Because the time that they're spending analyzing the data counts as, as you say, marketing costs. So you're, you're, looking at, you're looking at all of that. And I think that is a distinct advantage to being the outside observer looking in. And especially if it's a, uh, uh, a marketeer founder, they, they have a tendency to still spend a lot of time on it. And maybe they could, maybe they should, that's up to them. But at least what our role is that they are aware of the cost of that. All right. So one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we, that we got to, and we've been you know, pulling on this thread and here or there, um, at least thus far, is the degree of granularity. Uh, that we're looking in here. And, and again, I think this is better served in with, with an example if you've got one chambered. So you're advising, somebody is looking at the uh, translating the bookkeeping data into a more usable, actionable insight. So how granular are, 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 are we really going here? And again, I think, I think our audience, and even for my sake, an example would, uh, would be helpful. The short answer is as granular as needed. Okay. We have, for example, a client in the uh, supplements industry or the supplement niche, they have, I think about 10 or 12 different product lines. We give them a PL for each of them. So they can look at the, the PL for each of the product lines and say, like, which product group is actually doing better? Where are we investing in the marketing? Where do we expect to return? And is, are we tracking that? If they would lump it all together in just, okay, we spent X on marketing and do we see the revenue grow? they would miss out on a lot of the, the data that's, that is there. They just wouldn't see it. So we go to that level. I'm thinking we, we can go more details, but I would argue in most cases that's not really relevant because then you go to a super detailed operational level where we are trying to look for monthly uh, reports that give more strategic level insights. So you don't want to go too detailed and granular because that should be more on the operational level in your team. Coming off of the uh, conversation that I had um, yesterday, which uh, you know, if you're listening to this in order, um, it was with um, uh, with the uh, profit, and and one of the challenges there as well is also you know where you draw the line between what is it that uh, should be tracked and what's not. And the example that I gave him is you know let's just say as a freelancer, am I going to write down electricity 
I mean, yes, I technically need it, but am I actually going to be putting that onto, onto my sheets? I think there's, a, there's the line there is also has to do with, well, I mean, electricity is just a general living cost. So it's not like I only invested in it to run my business. I also invested in it so that I can, you know, uh, live like a civilized person. Is there a point where you say, this is the kind of thing we don't necessarily need. This is the kind of thing that's not exactly um, uh, helpful to to your picture. As you as you're describing, it has a lot to do with the operational costs. So I mean, it, it's still it's still important, but it, if it doesn't really factor into the strategy and decision making, then I can see it's not worth the extra time to look at. Yeah, if you talk about like the electricity cost of your home to split that out, like how I use my laptop this amount of time for personal, this amount. No, that would not in any way be material. Of course, the bigger you get, the higher the threshold becomes for material. I've seen people expense like $2 uh, paper clips, et cetera, in their, uh, in their company. And if you want to be a purist about it, you kind of should. I find it hard to put a number on there, but on your gut feeling, you kind of know if something is relevant or not. And $2 box of paper clips definitely doesn't meet that threshold, no matter how small your business is. If you're talking about $50 sample costs, yes, you definitely want to track that. So somewhere in between that is the cutoff point. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think just touching on the, the, the storytelling component of it, I think if somebody was that specific about measuring paper clips, th- there's, there's something interesting about the person doing that as well as the, uh, as the business. Yeah. The only place where I can imagine that it makes sense to count the paper clips is if you're doing a super high volume production line where you use tens of thousands of them per day. Then I can imagine other than that, don't even bother. Now that Shopify has upgraded to version 2.0, we needed to make sure we were up to speed. So we've released version 4.0 to ensure that we're 100% equipped to take advantage of the 2.0 revolution. If you haven't upgraded your store, head on over. And if you haven't gotten started, now's as good time as any. The next one that I wanted to ask you, um, this is uh, somewhat tying into um, what we mentioned about uh, KPIs, is you know you have uh, you have targets and targets can be missed, targets can be hit, and what I was keen on asking is you know knowing the difference between a realistic target versus an unrealistic one that happened to look realistic at the time. I don't feel qualified to tell you how to define if a target is realistic okay. or not. The only thing I can tell you there is every quarter or latest two times a year, revisit the targets. Um, if your Q1 is horrible, you're going to be demotivated throughout the year if you don't revisit your target. And at the same time, if you revisit your targets too easily, you make you, you give yourself too much slack and, and, and uh, you may not be ambitious enough depending on where you want to go. So I, I would say that the cycle should be set the target, execute as good as you can, and at the end of the quarter, evaluate, because you're gonna be off. Either you're gonna be too high or too low. And evaluate and understand why you're off. So was the target not high enough, or was it, uh, in hindsight, impossible to begin with? Or did you make mistakes? And learn from that experience to set a better target next time. It's a learning process. The same with forecasting, with budgeting, uh, and cash flow forecasting as well. They are anything that's forward looking is never an absolute science. The only thing you can do is learn um, from your past experience uh, using tools that are available and, and methods that are available.
to get more accurate over time. But it's never an exact science. And I recognize that, you know, with with the different questions prepared, some of them um, not not quite um, within uh, your, your your position of uh, of authority, but it's more it's always better. I just throw it out into the ether, and then let's just uh, let's see how it goes. Um, so so I appreciate that. And in the interest of that, the next one kind of along those same lines is also about the you know wasteful spending versus uh, growth opportunities. So to me, one of the things that this comes back to is the idea that they had that the thirty minute calls were was wasteful spending. And then they they cut it down to two minutes, and it turns out that was actually more wasteful. So, do you recall any instances of, you know, of of wasteful spending, and where it's actually been able to, where they've actually been able to securely say that yes, this is actually something that we need to cut down on? Uh, on a smaller scale, there are dozens. Let me think if there is a slightly bigger one. We had one client uh, who thought that he was making quite some money on one of their labels. In terms of revenue, they were. In terms of gross margin, they were not so much. And that was because, well, gross margin was still okay. In terms of net margin, they were actually negative because they, their acquisition cost was too high. And they had always looked at marketing as the overall cost for all the brands combined. And once we started breaking that out over the different brands, it kind of became apparent that that particular brand had been losing money for at least six months. That's how far we went back. So... The conclusion for that was they spent a bit of time trying to figure out if they could revitalize the brand and make it profitable. But in the end, they decided to kill the brand because they didn't see how they could make it profitable. So in hindsight, all their marketing spend on that brand was wasteful. The flip side to it is also growth opportunities. But I think in in some way, when you notice that something is wasteful and, and you cut it out, that actually ends up yielding growth anyways, because you've you know, saving is is a form of growth. So, okay, well, now this money we're not spending on anymore. We can either repurpose it or we just have it. You know, either way, I think cutting losses even counts as growth in its own way. It freed up a lot of mental resources and financial resources from the owners. They now had the brain capacity to not worry about five brands, but only about four that were actually doing better. And they were not burning a lot of money on it. So it, 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 it facilitated faster growth of the other brands. Here's a limiting factor that I have is the first limiting factor is being able to look at a dashboard and understand the, the different metrics. Um, so, so let's just uh, assume that we've gone past that. I think the, the next um, limiting factor might be understanding the relationship between them. So you know, if I'm looking at uh, LTV in, in a vacuum, what might not be clear to me is what are the other metrics that are um, influencing that? Because if I were to alter one, I'm going to alter another one and not, and not even really realize it. So um, I could start broad and say, um, is this actually a challenge or did I just pull this out of thin air? And then more specifically, um, even for, for, for start out sellers, you know, what would be the interact? What are certain interactions that I think people really need to pay attention to? First of all, yes, that's a challenge. And that's in our service, we do a couple of things. We do, uh, we do the accounting, we do the reporting, we do the dashboard. The one thing that seems to add the most value is the walkthrough video. It's a 20 minute video that talks through the whole narrative of all the metrics and how they interact. That's the one that gets the most positive response because that's where instead of seeing 12 different pictures, they have one story. So definitely, yes. Which ones are interacting? It's very business specific, but um, there are... Well, I guess for us, it's e-commerce would be the most um, significant one that we want to know about. Gross margin is probably... Uh, let me first start by saying one thing. 
Revenue is way overvalued as a metric. Uh, don't stare at revenue. It's a nice vanity metric. It's really nice to tell the neighbors or your friends how big your company is, but it's utterly useless as a metric. The one metric that you really want to keep an eye on in, in relation with everything almost is operational cash flow. That's by far the most important one in e-commerce. Second, the, we see a lot of interaction with uh, inventory turnover ratio and operational cash flow. So the faster you turn over your inventory, the better your operational cash flow. The other one um, is uh, the difference between gross margin and net margin for a brand and the, the marketing cost, the ACOS, the, the advertising cost of sales. That's usually the biggest chunk between those two steps. So they, those three are very, very tightly related. Let me think, there are a couple of others uh, that don't jump in my head at the moment, which is not a specific metric, but the, the, the payment terms and uh, to suppliers in combination with lead time is a very important one to play with to manage your operational cash flow. So if the lead time is shorter, the payment terms are a little bit less relevant. If the lead time is very, very long, you really need to manage your payment terms with your suppliers because that's most likely the number one thing that's going to kill you. Of all the ones, I think the one that uh, I was most fixated on is, is cash flow. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to make sure I, I understand it as well as I should. So my, my view of cash flow is you have your revenue um, and then you have your, your profit, which is all the money that you have left over after all of your costs are uh, are cleared, let's just say on a month to month basis. So my, my assumption is that the cash flow is now the profit that is put back into the company. And then all, you know, I mean, you, you do have, you know, the money coming in from the customers, but I would assume that is, you know, where the revenue comes from. I, I guess the part that I'm, I'm not clear on is, you know, where you draw the line on what is profitability. So if, if your, your costs include your employee overhead, if it includes, let's just say you're, you're renting a building, electricity, um, software, and all of that, you know, is, is is the profit at that point purely the profit, or is it still, you know, like it's like revenue in kind, where okay, well, even this has to go back into the company. This is going to have to cover something, you know, by next month, anyways. First of all, I'm really happy you're focused on cash flow because if there's one thing to remember from today, it's value cash flow over everything. Yeah, yeah, cash. So your gross margin is really your revenue minus the cost of goods sold. And cost of goods sold includes the, pr the product costs, but also the shipping and the warehousing. After that, you have your operational costs, like your marketing, but also your shipping to clients, etc. So if you're talking about office costs, that is below your gross uh, profit, but above your net profit. However, when you say there is like revenue is your cash flow in, that's definitely how it should be, but it's not necessarily the case. So in a lot of cases, Stripe, for example, may hold, or Amazon as well, may hold your money for a bit. So if you sell today, it takes you two weeks before you actually receive the money. So today you book the revenue, but the cash flow is two weeks from now. That's still a manageable gap. On the purchasing side towards your suppliers, that's where it really becomes relevant because the product that you take as a cost today, because you sell it today, you paid for that product to your supplier probably several weeks ago. So there's a massive mismatch between when you recognize the cost and when you actually pay the money. Managing that difference is 
outside of marketing and sales, the number one challenge for e-commerce. I mean, if I can even attempt to, to simplify an issue like that. So let's just say, for instance, I place the order with the supplier in October, but it, uh, but by no, it's the product doesn't arrive and doesn't sell until like December. And so that, that cost, you know, it, it happens, it happens in October. And then in November, you have the, 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 the revenue generated from those product. But what I'm, this is me just trying to understand it is you don't have a, you might, if you're not paying careful attention, you might lose the thread between the time that it took to order it for the product to arrive, for it to be sold, and then for the, for the revenue to be generated. So if you place the order to your supplier in October and you get the product in December and you, let's say you immediately sell it in December, when you sell the product is also when you recognize the cost of the product, but you paid your supplier in October. So you paid two months up front. So that also means that if you're growing fast and you want to build up inventory to accommodate future sales, you need to pay more and more inventory two months up front. E-commerce companies don't go bankrupt because their profitability is a problem. I see as many e-commerce companies go under because they grow too fast and therefore running out of cash uh, as that because they are doing too uh, bad on the sales and therefore running out of cash. It's never profit that makes or loss that makes you go out of business. It's always cash flow. And that word right there, I'm going to have to fix it on that one too, um, uh, which is loss. So it's somewhat uh, saccharine, but in in a perfect world, all losses are either a lesson learned or an investment. So is there a line there between losses that can be quantified as some sort of um, uh, long-term growth, you know, a lesson learned, or even an investment in, in a customer. And then there's losses like what I would refer to as spillage. You know, if uh, <laughs> a very simple example, if somebody, you know, somebody working at a grocery store, you know, drops a bottle on the ground, smashes, has to be cleaned up. There's no upside to that other than, I guess, the lesson learned, which is don't drop bottles. Uh, I don't think there's a very hard distinction there. The better your SOPs are, the less spillage you have, as a rule of thumb, at least. And you kind of want to minimize that. The lessons learned, if anything, any, every lesson learned should result in a better or a new SOP. So is that spillage or is it a lesson learned? Every unnecessary spillage, how, however small, could or should also be a lesson learned. I don't really see a very hard distinction there other than you want to minimize waste and you want to maximize the learnings from the mistakes that you make. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great takeaway right there is... Yeah, it, the when you, when you look into something like that, I even wouldn't have thought that that can turn into an SOP. But again, this speaks to the long term value of SOPs. Uh, is again, even the the unexpected can turn into something expected. So at least now we know. Again, going back to a, a rather banal example is if that an accident like that happens, now we know exactly what to do. It gets done faster, and as well, we've minimized the opportunity for the mistake in the first place. I don't think you should have the ambition not to make mistakes or not to have lessons learned because that would mean that you're not taking any risks, that you're not trying anything new. And that means that somewhere down the road, you will become irrelevant because the rest of the world is trying new things and is investing. Looking at the time, we've, uh, we've, we've cleared about 55 minutes. Um, and I have to say this hour has, has gone by uh, somewhat quicker than my, my usual perception of time. So with the little bit of time that I have left, um, the last thing that, I, that I'm just uh, keen on asking is about your, you know, your own personal skill development, because I know, again, you know, you're in the entrepreneurial side and then you're also in the corporate side. And 
I'm wondering about, I guess, like what skills came with you to this day based off the corporate side and then what skills came with you from the, from the entrepreneurial side? Okay, this one's, this one's going to be silly, but whatever. I'm going to give it a shot anyways, which is were there certain skill sets that someone would have developed even if they had done one or the other, like basically the same lesson twice in both, in both camps? The skills that came from the corporate is the structure and the KPIs and the reporting lines and the discipline there. And to be honest, it's one of the reasons why I left the corporate because I hated being bound by those structures. Uh, and only when I moved to entrepreneurship and uh, I ran a company in China with a partner and that started to grow. Only when that started to crack, I started to see the value of those corporate structures. So for me, the biggest skills, the biggest learning was being on both sides of the table. I learned the tricks on one hand, but didn't see the value. And on the other hand, you kind of got into the situation where everything was breaking and you thought, how do I fix this? And then somebody tells you like, yeah, well, that's why the corporates do it like that. The biggest skill set that I learned purely in entrepreneurship is flexibility, basically. Every day you got up and you, you don't know if at the end of the day, you're going to be a step ahead, a step back, or a step to the left or a step right. And that has been a rocky journey where every once in a while you feel you have momentum and then something happens and you get a slap in the face and you feel like you've climbed up two stories and all of a sudden you're back on the ground floor or even in the basement. The, the, the mental flexibility to take a deep breath, shake your head, think about what to learn from that and keep going again, only entrepreneurship taught me that. That makes sense to me. And I think the reason why is if that mistake were to happen in in a structured environment uh, like a corporation it wouldn't fall to the individual to try to sort out what happened somebody else you know from hr or even your management would tell you okay this is what you did and this is how you how you don't do it and it becomes more about memorization and less about the self initiative it takes to to learn on your own yeah and even if you wanted to do something that had the risk of falling down so much you would have to ask permission from one or two levels above and they would have been in that before and they would tell you, no, we can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. So in terms of efficiency, that might be better. But in terms of learnings, I, I prefer the entrepreneur side. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm a mix. I mean, being in, uh, being in a structured corporate environment, it's, it has an advantages. And I'm not uh, talking about my current position, really just more thinking about uh, previous positions and always looking for ways to kind of you know, bend the, the rules a little bit, see how... Uh, how I can um, uh, adjust things for my own um, coming. I get come, this is coming from, you know, my creative background, but my, you know, for, for being in the arts is limitations are one great way to um, encourage creativity because when you know where your restrictions are, it puts the brain in a different position to have to figure out um, different solutions to the problem. Um, I'll just tell you a quick story and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. So uh, one of the, one of the jobs that I had, one of the sales jobs earlier one, um, we had sales targets, you know, like $400 a day, $500 a day, but we didn't have commission. Essentially the, the, the sale, the, your, your commission was basically your hours. So if you sold well, you got to work more, if you sold less, you worked less. And I didn't like that because I could, you know, give it my all and, and, and do a great job. And if somebody comes in a day later, convinced based off my work, they, then they, they, and somebody else gets a sale for the day. So what I found was taking on a support role helped me have more consistent hours. Somebody had to take out the garbages. Somebody had to fix the watches. 
Somebody had to do the the the, the inventory, clean clean things up. Um, somebody had to run and get the coffee. And I mean, I wasn't. I needed consistent hours, so that was my uh, my my creative approach to it. So I think you could learn some independent thinking skills in a corporate environment, but I think in order to do that, you have to be willing to push back against the environment in the first place. When I joined the bank, we were recruited with the whole premise like, oh, we're looking for talented people that can break the rules and can help uh, change the culture. So I did a couple of projects in the Netherlands. Then they sent me to China to do a project. And I loved it there, wanted to stay there. Uh, but the Netherlands head office basically told me to come back. I asked, I fixed with my managers in Asia, with the, my first manager, my second manager, the head of Asia. I arranged with everybody that I could stay in Asia and that they would pay for that. And then somebody in the Netherlands in HR basically said, no, that's against the rules. You're not allowed to stay. You have to come back. It was so frustrating that you want to break the rules. You want to do exactly what they, th they said you, you, they bring you in for. And the first time you try that, they say, no, 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 no. This is against the rules. You really can't do that. For me, that was the, the bottleneck that I thought, screw you guys. I loved working here, but I'm out. Yeah, there's 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 rules in quotation mark, and then there's like, okay, now you're getting into like the law of the land. Okay, well, that was a good way to to decompress. But I think we are we're we're all good for for the day. Um, so uh, Rob Tabraka, it's been a great conversation. I I'm uh, I'm absorbing, processing, and and I look forward to uh, the 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 version of me that will come out of what I what I've learned today. Um, if you have any final piece of advice, like a Chinese proverb, or if there's like a saying that you like sharing, you're welcome to share it. And then after that, to let the audience know how they can um, get in touch and see more of what you're up to. I don't think it's from a Chinese proverb, but revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash flow is reality. That is the number one message to, to, to bring home in my eyes. And if you want to reach me, the best place to do that is connectrob.com. If you want help with setting the goals and the KPIs and the whole accounting process to facilitate that whole part, we have a game plan a discovery project, basically, that gives you the whole roadmap for that. And for your audience, we have a 25% discount at financeinsidematters.com slash ecomonics. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure's on, uh, on my side as well. Um, so with that, to our audience... It is an honor and a privilege to collect this information, use it for my own benefit, and then give it to uh, all of you. So uh, one more thank you to uh, Rob Braca for The Road. Take care, and we will check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>